Good morning and welcome. On this week's Countrywide, we hear about a walk with whistling in Ballyhara. We meet the customers and stallholders of Limerick's legendary milk market. And the President of Veterinary Ireland gives an update on new on-farm regulations. I'm Hannah Mulligan, broadcasting from RTE Lyric FM Studios in the heart of Limerick. And you can contact us as always on 51551 or countrywide at rte.ie. But first, this week a new organic scheme opened, a package of payments to encourage farmers to adopt methods of farming that cut out pesticides and chemical fertilisers. Now we have an ambitious target to reach 10% of agricultural land to be farmed this way by 2030. But right now, there's only 4% and 4,000 farmers farming organically. When I sat down with Minister of State Pippa Hackett, whose responsibility for the scheme in the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, I began by asking her how much interest did she predict there would be? I think there's a lot of interest out there. Um, look, I, I can't predict how many will apply or, or the types of farmers that will apply. Obviously, we have a finite budget, unfortunately. I'd love to have a, an infinite budget to support to port, support organic farmers, but that decision because will be made. last time you accepted every kind of eligible farmer that that applied, it's just, so you're saying that the budget potentially won't be there this time for every well, farmer we, that applies? we just don't know until we get the applications in. I mean, I do, as I say, anticipate good interest again. Certainly the, the, the noises and the, the movement music on the ground is very positive and we've seen certainly I suppose an unprecedented interest in organic farming over the last couple of years um, but we'll just have to see what numbers come in and, and see what budget is available. Over 90% of the 4,000 farmers who are organic are beef and sheep farmers. Would you weight it in favour perhaps of tillage and horticulture and dairy farmers because I guess organics would like more of them? Um, yes, organics would like more of them but ultimately we can't force any farmer into it and it, it is a choice that they have to make if they they you know, A, want to become organic and B, want to embrace what it means. I mean, it isn't just about the money and I, I'm sort of, a, uh, I try to express this as much as I can. This isn't just, it is it is well-paid scheme and it's there to incentivise farmers to get into organics, but ultimately they need to want to do it as well. And I think, um, so we do need that, that right type but of farmer. Potentially not another 2,000 well, farmers. Well, then we, the money isn't there for We don't know. We, 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 you, you must have some idea though. Well, I mean, we can see with the figures that we've we've got extra money this year, you know, for 2024 for organic farming. Um, when you so it's a five-year contract. Sum, that it you is, have to but have. when you tot up the sums for that, you're looking in around 1,000. But I mean, we, we we would have to wait and see what so the 1, interest 000, is. 1,000 farmers. Well, that that's not set in stone, but that's roughly what the, the anyone can work out the sums what the budget is for 2024. Are you worried that the markets aren't there for organics? Because that is what a lot of farmers out there listening are are worried about. We're seeing now as well. There's up to a 20% leakage of one-year-old beef animals in organics going into the conventional system. The markets don't seem to be there. Um, I don't think the markets have been t- particularly strong to now. I mean, half of the challenge of that is that we have produced such a, f- a low amount of organic, you know, particularly in beef. I mean, what are we, we're talking about up to now about 100 animals a week. You know, that's a drop in the ocean. But even and the then chal- you're getting that leakage. Yeah, but the challenge there is... there aren't organic finishers But the there. challenge is you can't um, provide consistency of supply. You know, um, the, the supermarkets across Europe in particular, you know, they want 12 months of the year. It mightn't align brilliantly with how 
we see organics, uh, you know, in terms of a seasonality. They want the 12 months. We just haven't been able to supply that. And we're only, we've only been in small marketplaces in Europe. But with the potential now, um, Bordbia now have in place an organic sector manager. So they're really, um, you know, putting the shoulder to the wheel in terms of seeking out those markets. I've been on a, a number of trade missions now, mainly to Germany. I'm just back from France last week. And certainly, um, certainly what, what people are saying is if you can supply us, you know, certainly in, in, in beef, um, cheddar cheese has come up quite a few times in terms of a demand and people would, would like to see that in, in European supermarkets. If we can supply it, we can, it enables us with a bigger volume to get into a bigger market share. But, but you have had this brief for over three years. And if I'm an organic sheep farmer in Donegal, my nearest organic processor is over three hours away well, I mean, in the east of Ireland. Is that not a, a key problem there? Th- well, absolutely. But whether the Donegal farmer wants to finish them himself or herself, that, that's one issue. What is the issue, and you talked about it in relation to leakage, is that we need to connect that uh, farmer with a, with a finisher further south and further closer to where the, the animal will end up being processed. And in a way, that's why we establish, we listen to the farmer and the sector and we established an organic trading hub now. It's an online trading hub that enables farmers maybe in the west and the north who are maybe, would rather see their animals, you know, finished and, and, and like, sold as organic. Do you, do you think organic. a trading hub is going to solve the problem? Because a lot of organic farmers have those connections already. If there aren't organic finishers there to finish the animals, potentially because there isn't enough organic meal, it's too expensive, it's almost double what conventional farmers have to pay, nearly triple if you're an organic dairy, dairy farmer. Are, are those not key issues that have haven't been addressed. Um, I don't think. I don't think there's a lot of organic producers in the west of Ireland who don't know any any organic finishers, and 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 probably you know it hasn't been made obvious to them how they make that connection. I think the hub will help with that. I mean, you've certainly seen an upsurge in terms of organic marts now. They're they're popping up. I shared one there this morning on on, on Twitter. They're they're up. They're coming up all over the place. I mean, before there was drum, drum shambo and that was really it. Now there's organic marts and opportunities there for for farmers to trade. Um, and I think. As as those markets develop, and I believe they will, you know, in Europe and in Ireland, our board B have recently um, launched a domestic campaign for organic <laughs> produce. We will see more finishers come into the market. Uh, uh, well, well, that's the beef side of things. I think beef farmers will still have a and, lot, and lot, for a lamb lot, as well. A, and for a, lamb. a lot of con- concerns. You mentioned cheddar there briefly, and. Organic dairy farmers, there are 17,500 conventional dairy farmers in the country. Barely 60 of them are organic. What are you doing to encourage more dairy farmers to become organic if you are? Because it seems like they're facing higher feed costs. There seems to be a lack of market as well, potentially for organic dairy produce. And also when we get back to climate change and climate targets, do you not want more dairy farmers to become organic? Because those are the farmers who are using an awful lot of chemical fertiliser who are branded intensive. And they're just not attracted to going into organics. Well, absolutely. I mean, in terms of climate emissions um, and carbon emissions, you know, the more dairy farmers we have, uh, organic but, dairy but farmers we have, to, the better. The flat, price, well, they get, are, the flat price they get from the main processor in Ireland, Glenisk, is 45 cent a litre. There are conventional dairy farmers out there this year who are getting over 50 centiliter. And this is in a year that hasn't been particularly good for yeah, milk prices. Yeah, but you're, you're probably not comparing like with like there. If you look at the 10 year trends for organic dairy prices, it has been consistent at a price. You look at conventional prices for dairy. OK, we had a bumper year last year. I mean, in some places, the price has been halved this year for conventional. But those it's, organic it's dairy farmers are paying nearly triple for organic feed. Well, they shouldn't be buying so much organic feed. They should be utilising their own grassland. That's they should a be very growing. simple thing no, to it, say. It but it if you 
sure but if you're but a, listen, if you're a you winter not, milker, this, no, you need but to this, use But feed. this is not about what do I replace my um, when I'm a conventional farmer versus being an organic farmer? What do I replace everything with? This is about farming differently. And if you follow those, there's a couple of really progressive organic dairy farmers who thought this through before they went organic. They were using multi-species swords five and, and, and eight years ago. They, they, they grow their own red clover silage. They have their protein needs met through a lot of the stuff they grow on their own farms. I, that I think is part that's, of the I challenge. I think that's a very that simple th- thing, thing to say. We still don't have that value added markets. But what I do want to talk about as well is forestry because that is a part of your brief. You have a 1.3 billion euro forest, forestry scheme there for farmers. But the planting to date has been 2,000 hectares. The target annually is 8,000 hectares. Are you confident you can meet that target? Well, look, the planting rates to date, it's no secret. They have been low. Um, we've spent the last three years fixing the problems of, of the last 10, you could say. Um, the last three years have been spent um, replacing the old inefficient, ineffective and quite frankly not functioning licensing system which had led to backlogs, led to appeals. So farmers should feel more confident if they apply for this forestry scheme. The last three years have been fixing the licensing system which is now fit for purpose. Also implementing at, at, at pains and at great length, to be honest, unfortunately longer than we'd have liked, a brand new programme which is now an, a, a, attractive to farmers in a way that the old programme wasn't. We've seen increased rates of payment, longer term payments and the interest is there among farmers because farmers know the need Are to Are they trees. worried about things like the ash dieback scheme? Are they worried about another ash, ash dieback si- situation happening? And indeed in terms of the ash dieback scheme, it was called a national emergency by a review commissioned by our own government. What is happening there for those landowners? Well, ash Dieback, yes, has been a, a, an awful thing to happen forestry and, all, and particularly if you are an owner of ash dieback and I've met with many of them, I've visited plantations. Um, as you know, I commissioned a, uh, a report to review what we've done. It came up with 13 recommendations, 10 are in hand, three related to financial payments. That's the tricky bit and that's the bit everyone wants to get right. What we are examining now under everything we can is is how we support those farmers and, and compensate them um, and, and enable them to get their plantations back up and running. We have to operate within state aid rules. We can't just give out money. Even if we had it, even if I had all the money in the world in my pocket, I couldn't literally just hand it out. There are rules and regulations around how we spend taxpayers' money on this. It have to give value for money. But I, it is something I'm determined to get right. And I'm, I'm hopeful over the next does, couple of weeks we will... make farmers wary, though, entering another forestry scheme if there's something else like ash dieback? There's, that hits there's there challenges to farming across the board. We've seen flooding this year. We've seen droughts in previous years. Farming is a challenging um, enterprise, whether it's livestock, whether it's whether it's uh, trees, whether it's crops. That is the nature of farming. Farm. I think farmers understand that there are risks associated with farming. What we have to do in government is is support farmers, I, enable them to become resilient to those challenges, I, and and support them when the supports I, are I needed. I, I finally, because we do need to talk about it briefly. You mentioned floods. Minister McConlogue has said that a flood support scheme is imminent for farmers in the. Shannon Callows. We've seen major flooding on farms across Ireland this week. Could that flood support scheme be expanded or that fodder support scheme be expanded across the country now? Do you see a need for that? I, I think the, the Shannon Callows is a particular area and I've met with the farmers, I've visited the farmers there over the past couple of years and I have worked with Minister McConlogue in terms of the development of a support scheme but ultimately support schemes and, and compensation schemes are not sustainable in the long run. You need to have a longer term plan for, for managing rivers. Who manages them? I certainly know from the Shannon, from 
from meeting with the, the Save Our Shannon group as well is the, the, the sort of disjointed way that it's managed. And that's a bone of frustration for them. And I, and I, and I accept and I, I agree with their concerns in relation to that. We also need to look about not only managing riv- the River Shannon or other rivers and other flood areas, um, the longer term management of the lands around that. Um, we do have a situation where we have rising sea levels. Um, the water has to go somewhere. Um, we have removed so much um, of our natural vegetation over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Hedges, you name it. We've drained every bit of land we can nearly drain. That is having an impact. This water has to go somewhere and we now have to look at that. And that will be looked at under the land use review, how we manage our land and how best our land can deliver for all of societal needs. And I think that's important. And that was Minister of State at the Department of Agriculture, Senator Pippa Hackett, speaking to me yesterday. And our thanks again to her for joining us. Remember, you can text us on 51551 or tweet at RTE Countrywide. Now, despite the recent bad weather, there have been some clear days and there are a few things as rewarding as a walk in the crisp autumn air when the sun is shining. In the woods below Schlievery, near Kilfinnan in South Limerick, Anita Bennis recently brought a group on a walk with a difference as they made their way along the banks of the Horn River. Anita shared her store of traditional airs through the generations by whistling. And of course, while Anita is a great woman for the whistling herself, it is in, in, it is in encouraging others to whistle where she gets the most joy. This is what Dermot McIntyre of Grey Heron Media discovered when he pulled on his walking boots and followed her into the hills. Can everybody hear me or would you prefer me to go to the back? Because I'm conscious that I'm whistling forwards because there's no way I'll be able to do the walk backwards. <laughs> whistling is a very natural thing and it kind of lends itself to the outdoors. So we said this year we'd bring the whistling to the walkers rather than the walkers to the whistling. Hopefully to be the first of many. And I was talking to a friend of mine about whistling. This woman said, every time I whistled as a child, her mother would say, when you whistle, the Virgin Mary cries. My mother would say that, you know, you weren't a lady if you whistled and also you were offending Our Lady. That really drove it home. <laughs> we're going down here, this Bori now, to Paul Nadeha. Locally phrased, Panadai Hall. People just come there and sit out to the nearest water, feature around. They arrive on here with their basket of food and sit out for the day after the fine day at Paul Nadeha. When you're walking, start by just dropping your shoulders. Breathe easy. If you do nothing, only breathe easy today and get a couple of tips. It's something. Don't be putting pressure on yourself to be able to whistle on the way home. You'll find it all right. Is there anybody here that can't get a whistling sound? Can you say the word white? White, a W-H, like the colour white. White. Okay, and now make a narrow pout and make a little tube with your lips and you're saying white, white. Yep, and just imagine the wind blowing. The tip of my tongue is behind my bottom teeth. But you can put it, some people put it in the middle of their mouth. So move your tongue around and you might find a shape that suits you. Okay, I'm just searching. Keep searching. My behind my feet. And okay. keep going. Oh. We walk on so and I'll do... I did it! I did the <laughs> Already! <laughs> we can go home. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> the next phrase goes... I'll go again. Back to the start again. We're going to do that bit three times now. 
My name is Martin. I'm from Cork. My dad whistled, his dad whistled, I whistle, my son now whistles. So yeah, we're a, a whistling family. Oh, this is your son here, Oshin. Oshin, yeah, yeah. He's been trying to whistle for the last year. And then two days ago, he's like, Dad, Dad, I can whistle. And he can. <laughs> so uh, he was very excited to come on today's whistling walk. Oshin, this is where you go swimming, isn't it? Yes. This is shallow and up across the dam, it gets a little bit deeper. And how deep does it get? It gets up to here on a child and up to your knees on an adult. So while we're walking, just have a go at making the whistling sound. And let your tongue just move around inside your mouth and say, hmm, what can my tongue be doing while I'm still whistling? And if you could get the air to go under your tongue, you'll be actually able to split the note then. Our tunes were pressed on by mouth. They were either songs or lilted or whistled. I played the fiddle myself. I have learned tunes from lilters and whistlers that, who don't actually play an instrument themselves. Similarly, you can pass on a tune using whistling. So for you, you're thinking of the whistle of your mouth as a similar instrument the same way you do your fiddle? I do. It was by chance that I started whistling the way I do. I had three children very quickly, one after each other in succession. And one day I was out of the clothesline and I was whistling as I always did. Um, I wasn't playing much fiddle that time really. As you can imagine, my hands were very busy. But I was doing loads of whistling. And I did... And I said, hmm, what am I after doing there? I'm after doing that a, a different way. What am I after? It took me three weeks to find it again. And then I was able to turn it into triplets. And then... I had a great childhood whistling away to myself. <laughs> I can see you like a little child. Uh, sitting down now with my knees crossed. Now whistling away. I tend to do it when I'm walking myself. I wouldn't be whistling out loud. But I'd be doing a tune like through my tongue a bit. So we're faced with a little obstacle now. I'm going over the stepping stones now, out through the Horn River. Whistling woman and a crowing hen. There isn't look nor grace in the house they're in. Or my granny had a one, it's worse than the devil and all his men. And I spent quite an amount of time outside in the Byler house with my granddad when I was small, having been pushed out of the kitchen for whistling subconsciously. So I'm actually really good at chopping sticks and blocks. I can chop pallets and make starters for fire as quick as anybody. I mean, this is the first time I've actually seen it as an art. I haven't ever heard a woman whistling before, in actual fact. You know, so it's eye-opening and fabulous, you know, that you can actually bring your instrument around with you. Um, it doesn't have to have words. It's just music. It's beautiful. And it's kind of eerie, actually, to watch just a dancer and somebody whistling. It could be in a pub. It could be in a hall. It could be anywhere at all. And everything it just so goes so quiet. Because <clears throat> it's just, it's such a quiet art. It's like, mm. it's like being, I don't know, outside a cave or something. It's so primitive, really. We've stepped out of the forest now, Jim. We have. And we're stepping up here now to two standing stones, as they're known. Alta, with the surrounding trees here now, as you can see, this area has become a place for people to practice their singing or their whistling because there's a great echo out of it. So you've got tiny little 
they're like little xylophone broken up into tiny pieces. Uh, they're chime bars. Yeah. So in each line of the music, we're going to have four of the G cards. So that's just Do, Mi, So, G, B, D. You've got C, E, G for the C card, and we've got the D card over here. Yeah, give it, yeah, lovely. And our C. And our D. He's got a sharp. And that's a report from Dermot McIntyre from Grey Heron Media. And that got a debate going in the Countrywide office. Do people whistle tunes anymore as they go about their work? Let us know if there's a good whistler in your life. Text 51551. And just a quick note as well, Glenisk have been in touch. And just to say that while 45 cent a litre is their flat rate summer price, it is up to 70 cent a litre now for their winter price. After the break, we meet the president of Veterinary Ireland and we get a flavour of the milk market. Email countrywide at rte.ie. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. And we've had a text on the whistling piece. People seem to enjoy it. Apparently, it's unlucky to have whistlers on sailing ships. I did not know that. Maybe our guest, the president of Veterinary Ireland, Paul McDermott, knows that. And we are, of course, live in our studio in Lyric FM in Limerick. Paul, president of Veterinary Ireland, do you know anything about whistling? Are you whistling while you work no, as a vet? Cannot, no, cannot whistle and I'm tone deaf. <laughs> uh, well, that doesn't matter for your, for your job as a vet. I guess I was surprised because vets are so well respected. They're so vital to the rural community and the urban com- community as well. It's taking up to a year to fill a position as a vet in certain pra- practices, whether you're in country or, or in the city. Why is that? What are the issues? Well, that, I think, uh, Hannah, that's more of a problem in rural areas. And that's to do with, I suppose, a couple of factors, like their social isolation is one. Uh, the uh, unsociable hours that that a lot of vets have to work with and I suppose um, rotas and retention of vets. It's, it's a multifactorial thing. You can't put it down to one thing uh, really. And um, but uh, It's an intense lifestyle, especially spring calving cows. You've got well over a million calves hitting the ground in the, in the springtime and vets are being called out. And we talk about rural practices, there might only be two people in those practices covering days and nights. Yeah, and that is that is a big issue. And that out of hours uh, issue is, is becoming a, a, a more and more of a big issue. And the um, Department of Agriculture and the Veterinary Council and hopefully Veterinary Ireland want to look at this workplace and see what can be done about that. Because if, it, if, if something is not sorted out on them issues... It's a possibility that in certain areas, especially along the western seaboard, it, it might be impossible to get a vet in, in, in coming years. And that, that's going to cause its own problems uh, with animal welfare and with, you know, other factors. 
a support payment has been brought in in Scotland for rural vet practices there. Could you see a need for that here? Yeah, I think there's a support payments. You can look at support payments across a couple of ways. Uh, OK, you can directly support. I don't know, that's that's not a factor at the moment. Or you can uh, support it through schemes like the TASA schemes that are we, you're probably well aware of, yeah, the parasite schemes and like that. And they, they help veterinary practices in, in that they're an income stream. And, and that's that that's another way of doing it. So there are there are a couple of ways and they need to be looked at. I guess what I didn't realise as well, there's well, there's uh, there's only one vet school on the island of Ireland, UCD. Uh, they produce about 80 Irish graduates every year. But there's up to 120 young people travelling abroad to study veterinary science every year in from the UK to Budapest to Poland. And um, is there a need for a second veterinary college in Ireland? Yeah, Veterinary Ireland recognised that need. There is, a, there is a need for a second veterinary college. Uh, we uh, send a lot of students to Eastern Europe uh, and the UK. There's a, a lot of students go to the UK as well. Um, and a second veterinary college. Now, as we're here in Limerick, uh, UL in Limerick has been mentioned as 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 that uh, place to put that college. There are other there are, there are other there are other locations as well uh, mentioned. But um, the, the need for a secondary uh, for a second veterinary college is definitely needed. But but that in itself is not the the only factor. Uh, the retention of vets. Is 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 one of the. It's it's not all about graduating vets. It's about retaining them vets in practices uh, going forward. Something that we touched on at the beginning of the show, we mentioned new on farm regulations, and that's for farmers and vets in regards to prescribing animal medicines, and not just animal medicines, but wormers. You've got uh, porons as well, say for lice, yeah. for example. Right now, there's a pen and paper system that's been in effect for ages. If I'm looking for an antibiotic for an animal, I get a paper prescription. There's going to be a major national digital overhaul that's going to happen across the country so that the Department of Agriculture will be able to see exactly what vet every, every, what every vet prescribes to every farmer in Ireland. There's going to be a bird's eye, eye view. Um, it, it's on a huge scale and it's meant to happen in December. Am I right? Are, yeah, people, are, I, are vets ready for that? Um, well, it's proposed that the 4th of December is the, is the date that this will happen. Uh, are vets ready? No. Are the Department of Agriculture ready? No. Is the IT system ready? No. Is the therefore overall, I, I, we 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 in Veterinary Ireland don't see that happening uh, at the moment. It's 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 not it's not viable to happen at the moment. Uh, you represent about half the vets in Ireland. Has there been a test run or anything like that done yet? There's been a couple of test runs. Um, it's, and 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 it's not looking very very good for vets because it's it's going to be very time consuming. Um, like one vet put the, any prescription is going to take at least four minutes. So depending on how many prescriptions you have to write in a day, you know it it that can add up to a serious workload for both the vets and the admin staff in veterinary practices. I guess the idea is that it will hopefully cut down on the use of antibiotics. Some of the antibiotics used in animal medicine are used in human health as, as well. So and AMR, antimicrobial resistance, is a big issue. But farmers on the ground are going to be wondering, how do they get a digital prescription? Is it via email, via text? It's, it's, it? a, it's an SMS text is what's proposed okay. at the moment. So a text will come into their phone uh, and they can then uh, get, that, uh, uh, get their product in either pharmacy, veterinary practice, 
licensed merchant or 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 um or co-op. Yeah. Um I I guess you are a national uh, um you are a local authority vet and people are going to be wondering what do local authority vets do? Well, that's that's a question I've often been asked what do what, what do county councils need vets for? But basically I suppose we have a multi, multi we do a lot of roles but we've three main roles. And them three roles are, uh, I suppose, uh, control of horses. Big issue in Limerick. Big issue in Limerick. But very good work being done in Limerick with, with, uh, in, in Moiras and with, uh, with Andrew O'Byrne that's doing a great, great work over there in Moiras. And um, uh, we do a lot of work with urban horses. Like we even, like my colleague James Madden has a, has a, a very good um, project running with autistic children uh, uh, with, uh, from that, research that's, in that's brilliant but it's, they provide a really vital service the minister uh, earlier mentioned that say if a farmer in Donegal wanted to process their own sheep for example you would be the person who oversees the food and safety regulations in that local abattoir that local abattoir can't exist without a local authority vet but from my understanding it has is there even a local authority vet in Limerick at the minute? Is there an issue there in regards to recruiting local authority vets? There's an issue in recruiting local authority vets and it's to do with the service contract that the local authorities have with the Food Safety Authority of Ireland. There's, um, there's protracted and as yet unresolved and, and we're looking at uh, having no contract on the first of January, twenty twenty four. Now that that's that can cause problems, Hannah, because like we we provide regulatory oversight to uh, you know to about one hundred and seventy five abattoirs and two hundred and twenty five meat plants in the country, and um, there has been no. Well, I can't say no recruitment of vets. There's been very limited uh, recruitment of vets. So that's leaving a huge uh, gap in the service. The resources aren't there to provide that. And the problem with that is that's, that, that, that can lead to a food safety risk. OK, well, that's, that's serious indeed. Paul McDermott, President of Veterinary Ireland, thank you so much for coming in and giving us your time this morning. Thank you very much, Anne. Now, as we arrived at the crack of dawn this morning to the RTE Lyric FM's in, Lyric FM studios here in Limerick, stallholders in Limerick's legendary milk market were already setting up to display their wares in anticipation of another busy Saturday at the oldest weekly market in the country. Now, it's like that every Saturday morning, as I know from being a regular visitor. But of course, another regular visitor is my grandmother, Catherine. And when we wandered through the market, we chatted about her memories, which stretch back to the 19th. 40s. I began by asking her how old she was when she first started coming to the milk market. I was about seven or eight when I came here with my mother in the pony and trap. We would do that uh, particularly at Christmas time to um, get some fresh vegetables and in particular fruit which was scarce in those days. What kind of fruit was scarce in those days? Oranges in particular, I remember. Bananas. All that seemed very exotic to us. <laughs> An exotic banana. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And was it important for the farmers in Limerick and the surrounding area? It was, of course, because it was an outlet for, for poultry. And would there be churns of milk and kind of flocks of well, geese with people have small, butter out? Small churns of milk and and people might, would bring their, what they called a gallon um, container to put the milk in. 
really? They bring yeah. their own gallon? Oh, they would, yes. They bring their own container to, uh, to put the milk in. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, I mean, the milk market now is beautiful and it's a real focal point for people to come on a Saturday, but it fell into disrepair at a certain point, didn't oh, it? Oh, it did. It fell into disrepair and it was, and then it was closed down, more or less. And uh, so in 2010, it got a complete refurbishment uh, with a canopy and everything. So it's generational. Yes, it is, absolutely. And, and just the... the the adventure of it, you know, if it's, you know, trying different foods and different flavours and, and it sort of opens up a whole new world for people, actually. I'd be very interested in the street food. Would you know? I would, and, uh, because it's something so different and it always looks so authentic and you feel you can trust it. Uh, and, of course, I love all the cheeses. Well, besides your custom, um, there are plenty of other customers here as well. So I'm going to find some of them and see why they're drawn to the market. And I'll I'll leave you to go on your, your and mission. I, and we'll have a, a cup of tea or, a, or something when, when you come back. That was some beautiful harp playing. And the two musicians are here with me, but... Firstly, I've got to crouch down to talk to you because you're a little bit smaller than people will expect from hearing about expert harp playing. Can you tell me your names and how old are you? Uh, I'm Isla and I'm 10. My name's Fia and I'm 12. And is this your first time playing in public? No. No? No. (laughs) We play here every Saturday. That was lovely. I'll let you continue. Thank you both very much for that. We're from Tipperary. Yeah, so it's a bit of a spin, but it's well worth the journey. It's everything you need. It's vibrant. It's a day out. Yeah. Who, who do we have with, with us? Uh, this is Ada, and okay. then we have Jack and Evie. Are, Jack and Evie are here. Twins. Twins, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's nice to get back sodas. Yeah. Uh, Mummy and Daddy like the coffee stall. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, thank you very Thank much. you. Cheers. Take care. Thank you very much. I know, I know. I like to come into the milk market because sometimes fresh fruit, you meet more people, and then it's so enjoyable. And you have your little girl here as well. She's four years. Yeah. Does she come regularly? Is this one of yeah. your regulars? So, so you, what, what kind of stuff do you have in your stall here in front of you? Oranges, bananas, strawberries, mushrooms, eggs and veg. I'm here since I was 12 with my mother and my nana was there as well. She's there with her mother. She was, yeah. How many generations is that? Three generations. Well, I'll, I'll leave you to your, to your veg, to your fruit and veg. Thank you very much for that. Thank you so much. This <laughs> And that was Louisa Cosgrave, whose family have been associated with the milk market for generations. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined by two lovely stallholders in studio now who've brought in some goodies. Well, one of them has anyway. We won't talk about the other one in the minute. We have uh, Tim Harris from Tim's Table and Audrey Power from the Little Cheese Stall here. Audrey, I'm going to talk with talk to you first. When I'm wandering around the milk market, I can hear you and your sister at your <laughs> cheese stall before I actually see you. The laughter is unbelievable. Unbelie- unbelievable. That's how people seem to find us. They can hear us before they see us. They go, oh, the girls are up. 
up here. <laughs> is that part of the joy of kind of meeting customers and having a stall? Oh, definitely, definitely. There's always people are coming in telling you all their news and they're all there for the crack. Like, you know what I mean? Definitely. And, and tell me, do the customers, do they connect with you? Do you have regulars? Oh, definitely. I have customers I've been serving for nearly 14 years and you, we all kind of go through life together, really. Do you know, you know everything about them. They know because you meet once a week and you all tell each other the kind of news all the week. So definitely. That's brilliant. It's beautiful, it is, definitely. And Tim, you've been doing it for a bit of a shorter scale. I, I know Audrey's, Audrey's nearly an old veteran now. So how long have you been in the milk market? We've been in the milk market just over a year now. I'd say about, what, 13 months? Yeah. And what kind of wares do you have? We mentioned Audrey's cheese. Tell us a bit about what you have. Oh, we have a, we have a nice broad selection. We have um, savoury and sweet pastries that we do. Um, so we do giant sausage rolls and vegetarians, pies, bits and pieces. We do some uh, classic Australian p- um, pastries as really? well. Lamingtons. Because people might not know that Australian twinge to your accent there. Yeah, no, talking. I, I kind of lost the accent. I'm, I'm Limerick 10 years now, um, so I'm kind of kind of becoming mm. more of a local now. But yeah, so I'm from, from Melbourne originally. Um, so we, have, we also do our um, Aussie pies, which are a big hit. Um, but then we have retail products as well. So we have jars of pestos, hummuses, and our uh, lavash crackers as well, our cheese biscuits. That sounds amazing. What kind of crowds come to the milk market? Audrey, you've been here for a while. Yeah, I've, I've been here. So like I remember one year, I think there was over 10,000 on one Saturday, going back a couple of years ago. Like the footfall is amazing here. It's a really well-supported market. Like I find that people travel, they come to the Limerick market for the buzz and the atmosphere around here, you know. And listeners uh, can't see or smell, but I have a, a garlic and herb cheese waft, yes. wafting in front of me. It smells, <laughs> it smells delicious. Where does this cheese come from? That is made locally, <clears throat> excuse me, in Limerick. It's made out in um, a farm out in Effin. Wonderful. Out the old creamery. So that is our garlic and herb. It's one of our best sellers and it melts Beautifully, absolutely. People put it on toasties and they put it in their lasagnas or even on your omelettes even in the morning just for that extra bit of flavour. It's beautiful. That's wonderful. And Tim, then for you, you must have some best sellers on the list. What, what are they? Gosh, oh, definitely our, our sausage rolls, our giant gourmet sausage rolls. They, they would be our top sellers. I have seen these sausage mm. rolls. They are impressive, I have to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'd say definitely the sausage rolls. The, um, the veggie rolls are also a very big hit as well. I'm interested though, Tim, because you trained as a professional chef. So then how did you become a stallholder selling all your delicious goods in Limerick? Yeah, I'm I'm 20 years as a chef now. Um, my wife uh, is also a chef. We met in London, gosh, 10 years ago. Um, we came to Limerick. We I, I moved here for, for love. And, um, is she a Limerick woman? She's, she's <laughs> a Limerick girl. She is. She's Limerick through and through. Um, so, so I came over, you know, for love. And um, I suppose I, I was working, I worked in lots of restaurants and hotels around Limerick. And I just, I, I knew that I had something to to give to people, that I wanted my food in, you know, in, in their homes. And, and, and I just wanted to share my passion and my love with them in a direct way, do you know, and, and in a really personal way. So we just, well, I had to come up with something to, to bring to the people. And did COVID kind of spark that change, that step then? To COVID did. I was, I was really lucky. I got a position in um, Dunn Stores during COVID. So I was able to work during COVID when a lot of the hotels and things closed down. Um, so I was really lucky in a way. And working in that environment showed me the... Uh, benefits and the, and the potential that that the retail market has, um, you know. So that's why I wanted to 
to push on and venture into into bringing a product to the market. And Audrey, it was a little bit different for for you. I yeah. think you had a father and a family who were very interested in mechanics. Yes. So how, how does a me- how how do you go from helping your dad with the mechanics to I a know, cheese stall? Yeah, it's just I suppose it was just a job for me initially when I was raising my family when my kids were young. It suited me because you were starting work at kind of six a.m. and you were finished kind of around two, so you you're at home then for most of do you know what I mean the day like. So, did, did you know anything about cheese? Not particularly when I started. <laughs> no, I really didn't. It re- but you learn as you go along. I remember like my first day, there was someone went to come in and train me in and they, had, they, they couldn't make it. So what we did was we put the most expensive cheese to one side, the average price and the cheapest ones, and we just went from there. You know what I mean? And Tim, for you as well, you've had a lot of business support, haven't you? Yeah, so, in terms so of the local we had, enterprise we had office. a huge support from the LEO, the local enterprise, uh, local enterprise office. Um, they've been absolutely fantastic. They have um, grants available. They have they work with Super Value as well for the Food Academy, um, and they can bring people from kind of concept all the way through to market ready. Um, so so they've been integral um, throughout our business um, for the past year and a half. So there's mentors, there's there's everything available from the from the LEO. So and what can't speak highly. you were advised not to get a loan when you started your business. Was it your mentor James James Brown? Yeah, J- James James Burke. Burke. He he just one of those things that stuck with us was was you know if a business starts with a loan from a bank that business will carry that loan throughout their entirety of, of their business's life um, in, in a broad sort of speaking. So that just gave me the, the, the you know, uh, the impression that, you know, we're better off trying to bootstrap it and trying to do it all ourselves from the beginning, you know. So that's that's kind of what has uh, been a big driving force for us as well, you know. And a kitchen um, a kitchen in a back shed, I think, was essentially what... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So so instead of going out and, you know, looking for a premises or anything like that, we sort of said that we had, we had a bit of space at home and, you know, with the LEO's help, with the grants available, we were actually able to build a production kitchen on our premises, which has been, you know... Fant- uh, you know, fantastically beneficial for us. Audrey, you've been very brave as well, though, because mm. you were working with someone for a long time before yes. you went off on your own. Yes, we did. Yeah, I was working for a lady. I oh, must have been about, I'd say, about 12 years, maybe. I was working with her. And then, like yourself, we just took off on our own and sourced markets where we could go in and trade. And thankfully, everyone was so welcoming. Like, and so, yeah, we just tried to base ourselves mostly around Limerick and we just kind of took off from there. So, Audrey, if people want to find you, where can they find you, oh. online or in person? Yeah, well, we're at the Bilt Market every Saturday morning. We're here and we're in Castle Troy on a, on a Friday and we do Kilrush on a Thursday. And we do post a lot of all the markets that we're going to be doing over the Christmas. And you've lovely Irish cheeses. Lovely, beautiful cheddars. Our cheddars are bestseller. Brilliant. Yeah. And Tim as well, I know you have a website. It's timstable.ie. And can they find you anywhere else? Yeah, so... Um, we're in the milk market every Saturday. We're also in select super value stores all over Limerick and independent retailers. Um, and you can find everywhere else online. Well, uh, thank you both very much for coming in. And that's our lot for this week. Thanks to Amandine Passett-Devine, our broadcast coordinator, sound engineers Jamie Doyle in Dublin and Niall Hogan here in Limerick. Thank you to the two lovely stallholders who came in. Thank you to the producers Brenda Dunahoo and Eileen Heron. Ear to the Ground is an RTE1 television on Thursday at 7pm. Until I talk to you again, a very good morning and thank you for listening. 
countrywide on RTE Radio 1. Listen back on the RTE Radio Player.